0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: Welcome to our next episode of Microbe in Fee podcast. Thank you, Andrew, for letting me host this one. and. Uh, We'll start with Andrew Page uh, to introduce himself no, to this we'll panel. let's <laughs> we'll start with who you are. <laughs> okay, so I'm Yaseh. I did my PhD from University of Birmingham, and uh, I moved to QIB in 2017. I start working on antibiotic susceptibility mechanisms, and uh, for the last five years, I have studied different antibiotics how the bugs become resistant to those antibiotics and uh, what are the novel mechanisms and what are, what are the existing mechanisms and how they differ from the novel mechanisms. That's what my work is about. So I have started in the last few months a science soundbite series that helps scientists to understand scientific literature. So we try to make it easier for the PhD students, postdocs or other researchers, uh, the work of other scientists. And uh, in today's discussion, we will be talking about mobile genetic elements that are present in many bacteria or almost all organisms. And uh, we'll be talking to our experts that are Dr. Andrew Page, Dr. Emma Waters, and Dr. Heather Felgate. So, Andrew Page, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Andrew Page, uh, co-host of the Michael Podcast, and I'm Head of
2: Informatics at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, in the UK, and I also do lots of bioinformatics y stuff, and I've done a little bit of MG, mobile genetic elements stuff, um, but really, you know, I've got the experts here in front of me who actually not only do uh, a bit of bioinformatics but also do a lot of work in the lab. So, maybe Heather, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Hi, so I'm Heather. I'm a postdoc in Mark Webber's group looking at staphylococci in general, carriage and also isolates that are um, implicated in infection in neonatal babies. So yeah, I've been working here for quite a few years but I've got a long history with staphylococci and microbiology in
1: general. (laughs) Thank you.
4: So my name is Dr. Emma Waters. Previously I finished my PhD in 2017 and that was in chemistry, so there's a lot of biology terms that I struggle with every now and again. But since then I've done a postdoc in the School of Chemistry at UVA and then a couple of postdocs in the School of Medicine and now I'm a postdoc in German Languages Group at the Quadrum Institute. I focus on genome rearrangements in pretty much any bacteria, but mostly I like Salmonella, definitely Typhi, and I do have a bit of bioinformatics slash lab all-round experience. Almost yeah. all of <laughs> us
1: have uh, commensal Staphylococci or some species of uh, Staphylococci. Do you know what is Salmonella enterica serovar typhi? Is? Yeah. It's a gram-negative <laughs> uh, bacteria that causes typhoid fever. You might heard of that typhoid fever. And uh, it is quite common in uh, developing countries where sanitation and uh, the sanitary conditions are not that good and uh, water is contaminated. So Dr. Andrew Page worked with a group of scientists from Pakistan in 2018 and they found out extremely drug-resistant typhoid. So what is extremely drug-resistant typhoid, I can explain that first before going on to that. So usually we treat salmonella typhi or the typhoid fever with three common antibiotics that are chlorophenicol, amoxicillin and uh, and if the typhi, typhi become resistant to these three antibiotics that is called XDR, sorry, MDR typhi, multi-drug resistant typhi. And then the second line of drugs you if you want to say that that is uh, chlorofen- <laughs> fluoroquinolones, that like ciprofloxacin and uh, ceftriaxone that is uh, cephalosporins so if it becomes resistant to that one as well then it's called XDR then there are only one or two drugs left for other treatment options and uh, they find out that in Pakistan that strain is present that is only susceptible to azithromycin and uh, carbapenems that, w- that was a very dangerous condition and because of their work uh, not only the international activists wake up, but also the local public health um, uh, officers and the machinery become activated. And just because of that one publication, they had started quite a few uh, center studies, and they had started a vaccine program now in Pakistan that has uh, reduced the incidence of typhoid in that part southern part of the uh, country and now in the northern part of the country although there was they were trying to restrict it but it has been reported and you know what Dr. Emma Waters was was the person who worked with the group of other another scientists from the northern part of Pakistan and they found out the transmission has happened in the northern part of the country and they reported it and now they are trying to contain it there as well so we'll ask some questions to these two experts about how they identified XDR typhi on the first place uh, in Pakistan. Would you like to tell us the story a little bit about that? How did you find
2: that? Yeah, so we got uh, samples that were taken from outbreaks within Pakistan. And obviously typhi is a human pathogen, and it kills, what, 100,000 people a year is that of them. So very, very bad, and it's usually the people who are least able to access healthcare are the ones impacted, and it's the... But a fecal oral route, if you know what that is. And so, what we did was, we got a, a load of samples from the area which were not XDR and a load of samples which were, so you know, you could tell from growing them up in plates and uh, seeing it, the antibiotic resistance. And then we used Banformatics and it meant having to write Banformatics tools to pull out, you know, what is similar, what is different. And out of that, we found actually there was a a plasmid, basically. Or we found evidence of uh, a plasmid program, three pieces, and it was like, yeah, grand, bingo. There you go, we've got a plasmid. It's introduced all of these extra AMR genes on top of an already um, quite drug-resistant strain of typhi. And that's not very good. And then we could trace it back by looking in the public archives and see that it came from an E. coli strain in cattle, which is picked up by CDC, kind of global surveillance and that's kind of a nice little story, you know, you you see it in one totally different species and it moves into a different one. And yeah, and that's kind of where we stopped. Uh, that was used as evidence for the WHO to roll out a, a vaccination program. And so that, you know, that kicked off all the machinery, as
1: you said, uh, you And That's very interesting. So uh, that work that you did, uh, was it Solely based on sequencing, or was it based on some phenotypic uh, observations that they found in the bacteria? Uh, it was a combination of two, so it's the phenotyping data plus the uh, d- uh, genome sequences. So oh, okay. we knew uh, what they were. All right. You found out that uh, there are uh, some genes that are present there, in the identified as they are Salmonella genes, and then you found some additional genes to that. So, we can say that there are some core genomes of Salmonella there, present there. And then there are some accessory genes that came in.
2: Yeah, so uh, the original strain was H58, which is like uh, the original haplotyping scheme that they had for a Typhi. And that, that's that been causing havoc around the world. You know, it, that's most of the uh, multi drug resistant case of Typhi. And obviously, mm-hmm. that caused a lot of deaths. So, it's the one that everyone really looks out for. And then that acquired an extra plasmid. And, then, you know, plasmids move in and out. And in this case, a, some of the drug resistance genes had integrated into the chromosome, so it's mm-hmm. really bad. You know, if a plasma, they can move out and you know be kicked out, but when they then get integrated, they're very difficult to get, then get rid of. And then it got an extra plasmid on top of that with extra genes on top of that. And in some cases, they're duplicate gene AMR genes, so you got you know twice as bad. So not good all around and. Obviously this has happened because we overuse antibiotics and we mm. need proper
1: antibiotic stewardship. Okay, that's quite that a very good point basically. So Emma, would you like to tell us the story that how did you get involved in that, uh, finding the XDR typhi in Pakistan and uh, how did you manage to do that?
4: So we were contacted by a hospital in the north of the country and originally the outbreak was in the south. So they were aware of what was happening, and then they realized in this one hospital in Lahore that they were starting to get more and more cases which weren't treatable with their normal antibiotic choice. okay. So they started to pick up an idea of what might be happening, and that was when they sent us samples to do sequencing of, to basically see if the same thing was happening, if that outbreak strain was going into the northern part of the country.
1: Uh-huh. Then uh, did you find any difference in the sequence of organism uh, that is found in the southern part of the country and in the northern part of the country, or was it same?
4: So I think on this case it was the same, so it was the same sort of introduction into the system, but correct me Andrew if I'm wrong, <laughs> it was the same introduction, but on another occasion in a different publication we actually have seen that this... Um, region has been introduced in different ways so it's it's like the same resistance has been introduced in different ways
1: so as we are talking about mobile genetic elements uh, Heather would you like to introduce us what kind of mobile genetic elements are there in in bacteria
3: there's a lot there's a lot of different mobile genetic elements and some can jump between different species some only like staying in one type of species it's all quite complicated and, well, that's why we have a job to, I suppose, look for them. <laughs> in regards to staphylococci, it's very different to what Emma and you guys work on with gram-negative salmonella and stuff, so uh-huh. we just okay. kind of have to keep looking, keep searching and work out which ones are jumping from where to here to there.
1: So like there are phages and there are transposons and there are plasmids, but there are different kind of plasmids in gram-positive and gram-negative. Okay, that, that makes sense. So uh, how do we identify, like there is a one way of sequencing it, and then we can find there is a mobile genetic element. But is there any other way of finding it, like through any phenotype mechanism or uh, through like uh, any antibiotic susceptibility mechanism, or uh, we can identify that, okay, there is a plasmid there, or usually it's easy just to do sequencing.
3: Yeah. Uh, so I think they go hand in hand really you have to do some sequencing and then you have to phen- and check them phenotypically Quite often I found with staphylococci they It just takes them a while to wake up some days <laughs> Like they haven't had a coffee. So you know um. their genome might say they've got quacks So they might be resistant to a certain set of antibiotics But when you test them, they're not and it's like you can grow them in different ways to turn those genes on and off So but you also have to look at the percentage of that gene. Is it a full? gene that's there that's on the plasmid or has it, you know, suddenly got, like, been truncated or snapped in half and so you've got to keep searching and keep, like, practice how they look like on a plate and how they grow like in antibiotics and also marry that up with their genotype because quite often i found as well that there might be genes that we don't know yet and they've got similar antibiotic resistances but they don't have those genes.
2: So you work with a lot of uh, genomes from hospitals and I hear that that's really really bad for antibiotic resistance and so
3: hospitals
2: (laughs) hospitals in general you know like they hand out drugs like candy and uh, of the samples that you know are antibiotic resistant how many can you kind of link back what percentage can you link back to a genotype?
3: With staphylococci it's really difficult like I've been working on staphylococci for, for like four or five years or something now they're gonna kill me um, there are genes that are just unknown. So I reckon about 80% of genes, like when I see genes, actually then relate to a phenotype as well. But, quite as, again, quite often they might have a gene and not be resistant as well. So there is there is quite a big disparity between whether they carry that gene and whether they're resistant or not. Um, it's just a case of, yeah, there's certain certain tests you can do to check that the genes get put on. So like mek they like being grown at 36, not 37. Uh, (laughs) You know, with a little bit of salt in there as well and then then they become more resistant. So there's certain things you can do to test it a bit more.
1: (laughs) Uh, There are some reports of AMR genes present in some kind of microbiome sequencing or uh, some other uh, organisms, just whole genome sequencing. But when we phenotypically check it, uh, it doesn't show any signs of uh, resistance to that antibiotic. So that's very interesting uh, because those genes are there but they're not active, they're, maybe their promoter is missing or there is some silencing, small RNA is being produced and that's not letting them express it. So uh, t- towards uh, your other point, I just reminded one uh, that like do they need specific conditions sometimes as you mentioned, they like it salt or something?
3: Yeah, I don't know why one of those things i just read somewhere Okay. okay. <laughs> and certain antibiotics you've got to have the addition of extra metallo-like elements so daptomycin is often given to staph infections um, especially like skin infections and stuff but testing it in the lab if you are to test daptomycin resistant salmonella compared to staphylococci you've got to add calcium and certain extra things to make sure that the, gene, the proteins that they, they make are, have got enough you know and have enough things to make the actual protein work.
2: How do you know what you are growing in the lab is actually what's causing the person to be sick?
3: So I look at a lot of carriage, so they're not always associated with disease. Ones that are associated with the disease are usually taken from blood cultures. So, they're usually quite unwell. You, your blood should be fairly sterile. <laughs> you well,
2: should. There's <laughs> no microbiome inside us, uh, like in our
3: blood and our brain. So, microbiome is very different. Uh, you, it's hard to define, like, if someone's sick in their microbiome, in their, and it's to do with their microbiome, like, which one's causing it, which one's not. But from blood cultures and usual sterile sites like CSFs and cerebral spinal fluid, they should be pretty pretty sterile. So if you've got stuff growing yeah. out of there, <laughs> that <you>. person's <laughs> not having a great time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Uh, so do you think that this conditionally expression of the genes, it could be related to their pathogenesis or uh, could be related to their particular survival or is related to AMR?
3: Yeah, it could well be. So some, some staff of genes to make them, well, we think that let them survive in the gut a bit more, but they have to have high amounts of metal. So they have metal, metal scavenging
4: mm-hmm.
3: proteins like siderophores and zincophores and stuff like that. So it makes sense that, you know, some proteins that confer resistance need extra metals and stuff. So they will have those genes to help make the proteins work. Thank you. But,
1: do you think that the core genomes that we identify uh, does it has to be same in the gene, whole genus or that they can be different in genus or it can go more than a genus The core genome is same in all the bacteria?
2: If you take any random bacteria like gram positive, gram negative, and you throw them into a pan genome mm-hmm. you'll get probably 150 genes in common because bacteria are, are defined by something that like a common ancestor billions of years ago but they are, do have some kind of shared mechanisms that make them just function. And, you know, even if you take E. coli and Salmonella, they're separate by, what, 100, 200 million years? And still they have about 2,000 genes, like core genes that are in common, like it's very, very high. And that's why you can get transfers between a lot of the uh, gram-positive and gram-negatives, because they are so similar. Um, but there is a you know a whole host of stuff out there that we have no idea what it does or how it w- operates or what it does like if you look inside you like the microbiome inside you a lot of it is uncultured people haven't done experiments on it it's because it doesn't cause uh, disease so no one really cares about it and so if you look at anyone in this room like you're going to have probably novel species and genus inside you that no one else has um, which is kind of cool well no one, no one else has studied. You know? <laughs> and so may- maybe we might sequence your poo at some point and then you get to name something after yourself, you know? There you go. Yeah. Unethical, but you could <laughs> probably do that. <laughs> but as for core genomes, yeah, they, they can vary widely and it depends on what you put in. Um and nowadays people are have gone from say doing MLST, which is where you look at seven genes and type them, mm-hmm. to core genome MLST, which is where you um build schemes for uh, you know the whole species and then to pangenomes where you just build the species as you need it for each study
1: or you build genome for each study that you need mm-hmm. and pull at mm-hmm. the core. Do you think the essential genes like uh, they are the same as core genome or how do we identify the essential genes basically?
4: That's a good question. So I think it depends on what your question is to begin with like what is the essential genes? for that situation you're looking at I think mm-hmm. it's more of the idea of essential genes so like Heather was saying like different environments may need essential, different essential genes mm-hmm. oh, okay. and they may need certain things to grow in that environment compared to others it's kind of like your um, genetic history instead of what is actually needed in the modern day it's kind of that sort of balance I would say
1: Okay. So, Heather, you have sequenced hundreds of uh, staphylococcus uh, Thousands,
3: gen- yes, here, technically.
1: <laughs> okay, thousands <laughs> of uh, Staph genomes. So, have you identified a core genome for staphylococcus, or have you looked through this angle or uh, so this prospect staphylococci
3: of staphylococci in general, everyone thinks about Staph aureus, MRSA, and I don't care about that. Everyone's interested in that's like Everyone's interested in that. So, you get these there's two groups you get your MRSAs or your Staph aureus and then what I call my non-aureus group or you'll see them in literature as cons coagulase negative staph Mm. and they get lumped together and when I last looked at it like one week ago there's 83 different species in that one group that scientists medical professionals group together called cons they are as diverse so if we say but my favourite at the moment is Staph haemolyticus if we say that is a human and we compare it to a staph epidermidis, it ma- it's about 75 to 78% DNA match. So that is as related as humans are to cows. So they're massively diverse, so what's the core genome between a human and a cow would be the same as looking at what's the core genome between a hemolyticus and an epidermidis. It's so diverse and completely different and again different situations, they grow different ways, they biofilm different. There's, yeah. Within Haemolyticus and Epidermidis and with Capitis, you'll find a core genome, but across the whole spectrum of cons, it's...
1: It's quite diverse.
3: Yeah, you can't really find one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but then uh, with MRSA, like, don't people just really look at two? You know, it's EMRSA yeah. 15 and USA 300. 300, yeah. But that's because in hospitals, no one cares about anything else. So because yes, the they're they are the ones
3: that caused, have caused outbreaks. And there are others that cause outbreaks and disease but because they're everywhere quite often they're like oh maybe it was just fell in from you know you're from taking a blood culture maybe just got stuck on the needle Mm. and then so there's a lot of discrepancies and, and a lot of troubles of actually identifying an infection and not with staphylococci because they are everywhere so you can quite often get misdiagnosis and or like people just saying well that that baby never had a central line in so they can't have a cons infection, and you're like, well, you, you can. Okay. It's not always a puncture wound that has to create it and stuff, so it's complicated. Okay, as you have
1: mentioned that uh, there's a quite diverse core genome exists, and that bringing me like a kind of uh, point of the question in my mind, uh, is it possible that it is mobile genetic elements that have caused that diversity in the core genome, like uh, how we identify in the first place this particular sequence belongs to mobile genetic element and this sequence is the core genome sequence or the sequence of the organism or something. You look at the differences, so it's,
2: you have to have like a control group where you know it maybe it's a phenotype and then something which has a phenotype and that's where you have to go and drill down and you need high quality to, uh, phenotypic data to support all of that. that's where the lab has to work with people doing bioinformatics analysis because if we don't understand what uh, happens in the lab then you know we'll just create noise and you can always find a signal and pis will always make up a story to justify what signal they've found you know give give a pi a random set of five genes and they'll make up a story saying exactly why that has happened and yeah don't do that but it's things like intermediate resistance that's a really hard one you know because what the hell does that mean?
3: We have uh, Staphylococci. Uh, some are classes heteroresistant, which means they're nearly resistant to vancomycin, but not quite resistant to vancomycin. But you know, like, where do you, where's the cut off to being dangerous and not dangerous when you've got a term heteroresistant as well?
1: So, uh, are they all really bad, or uh, they can be used for the good? Those mobile genetic elements.
2: Yeah. So. Um A lot of, say, mobile genetic elements you see do nothing. In fact, if you take random bacteria, the differences are probably going to be like a random phage. It does nothing, it's just there to survive and it's trying to survive. And a lot of plasmids you find do absolutely nothing. They call them cryptic plasmids. Like, they don't know why they're there or how, you know, what competitive advantage it gives the bacteria. But there's a cost to all of these. And so the bacteria is going to kick them out, you know, they're going to be lost through evolution as soon as possible. But often we don't know what they do, and we don't know even in the most studied E. coli in the world what every gene in that does. So, you know, like K12. So we're kind of stuck, you know, when it comes to random other stuff. But there is a huge amount of genetic information being uh, exchanged all the time in different microbiomes. We just don't see it because it's commensals which don't cause disease and people don't study them.
1: Are you using transposons or uh, mobile genetic elements in some kind of applications or any beneficial Love studies?
3: to talk about transposons.
1: Well, you are, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: <That's laughs> the question to you, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is a transposon so, and why do you use it?
3: There are transposons, you might have heard, even I think you learned know, it as early as GCSE biology with the corn, isn't it, the blue and yellow corn. Transpo- transposons are jumping bits of DNA we can use their ability to jump for our good, to, look, to essentially create libraries of knockout genes to try and create a community, like a population of bacteria that have got each single, um, one has a different mutation, has a gene knocked out. So this is a, a what's that word, method. <laughs> this is a method that we've been developing, especially yes is very, very well known with, called TRADIS when we look at transposon insertion My favorite one. Your favorite one. Yeah. We try and insert transposons as randomly as possible into a population of bacteria, grow them up in a situation, and then if the genes are essential, they have to be there. There can't be a knockout. So you can then do your genome sequencing for all of them, and then look for the genes that are there. They're the, the essential ones, the ones that have been interrupted by the transposon. They can't move. So they're the ones that we need, the essential
1: ones. Okay, so uh, it means we can use the mobile genetic elements for our good as well, for in biotechnology, in understanding the mechanisms. Uh, they are not all bad, so there are some good ones as well, or we can use them for the good ones, you mean, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, is it possible to identify by just doing whole genome sequencing everything that we want to know, or by for knowing the functions, we need to do any other thing of the mobile genetic elements. So like, we are doing sequencing, and we are talking about sequencing from the last couple of minutes, and uh, we all know the advantage of doing the sequencing because we know the structure. But if we want to know the function of the gene, what we have to do? What, what can hope you can find to out test it in the lab okay. <laughs> knock it
3: out see yeah if you've got a an idea you can look at if you've got the sequence you can look at you know gene prediction protein prediction is it got a homologue in anything else does that look like something else that you can test it against but there are some genes and proteins that we will just kind of never know really Well, you might now never know, maybe.
2: And so many are annotated as just
1: hypothetical proteins. (laughs) That's
3: my life of looking at staff genomes. It's hypothetical.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, I mean, we we do not know the function of all the genes, of course. Like, we know only the fraction of (laughs) the genes, basically. We know even in E. coli, I think... We only know the function of half of the proteins that are characterized. Uh but
3: it's testing things with a, like a positive and negative. So I look at a lot of staphylococci in carriage, so mm-hmm. they're not causing disease, they've come from the skin. But comparing the carriage ones, the ones that we actually need on our skin, and comparing them to the ones that cause disease, it's looking at those genes that are different between that sets that can then help look for pathogen- pathogenicity and virulence factors and islands. It's looking at the absence of absence and presence in a good group and a bad group that helps define or help you search for the ones that are causing problems?
1: We have talked about uh, what are core genomes and uh, what are mobile genetic elements and how they can contribute to antibiotic resistance mechanisms or, or antibiotic resistance. So is there like the phages, can they be used for the benefit uh, as well like as you mentioned with the transposons, the phages are type of mobile genetic element can they be used as uh, any kind of beneficial activity or something
3: there's a lot of looking into phages and delivering of antibiotics drugs and stuff and that at the
4: moment i'm not a phage person uh, okay. there is mm-hmm. i have done a little bit of phage work in my vague past but um yeah it was more using phages to t- tackle bacteria so ones that actually attack bacteria. So then hopefully you could clear an infection with phage treatment instead.
1: Okay, so it, phages are not only involved in the spread of uh, antibiotic resistance, but they also can be used to control it. Okay. That's well,
2: one problem with phage is obviously the bacteria have a mechanism to you know record what phage is trying to kill them and you know embed it in their genome yeah. and then that's it it's resistant to that phage the CRISPR. CRISPRs ah. yes we all know about that but not that. all
3: bacteria hold, have the CRISPR system but yeah that is another implication. there's always one in there that cause a problem <laughs> sure.
1: uh, so in the past if we look just like two decades before like the situation was quite different than it is today we didn't have the facility of sequencing the whole genome uh, of the bacteria. And we were totally relying on the phenotypic observations. Uh, With this advancement in the technology and the sequencing amount of data we got, is there a way forward, do you think, that we can use this uh, amount of data and the technology (coughs) to tackle these antibiotic resistance mechanisms?
2: Not really, I mean, uh, we need to stop using antibiotics for inappropriate purposes, you know, like all it takes is one person in one part of the world to have, uh, to inappropriately use antibiotics and then it can have devastating consequences around the world because all a lot of these introductions are caused by, you know, one instance and one crossover of, uh, say, extensive drug resistance and then it spreads,
1: you know, so it's a global effort that we have to fight. Okay, no, that, that's a very important point because we all should be vigilant and we should all be responsibly using the antibiotics. Uh, but my question was, is AI or uh, machine learning can help us to tackle these uh, resistance mechanisms or identify resistance mechanisms and stop it before they happen?
2: I mean my PhD was in machine learning so I understand AI quite a lot and I know that it's a buzzword at the moment everyone thinks it's a solution to everything but it's not necessarily it's good for certain applications but not good for other applications and as long as you have you know like high quality data you can start mining it but at the moment we don't really have that kind of data um I could envisage you know some very interesting PhD and postdoc projects you know uh, for doing this kind of stuff but I I don't think it's going to be as useful as people claim it's going to be useful. They might get funding from a, a silly VC, you know, who doesn't know any better, but, you know, they might be bamboozled by all the, all the buzzwords. But uh, I, I'd i be cautious.
3: And even with that, you still got to, again, test it in the lab, test it in the situation, so it's always going to be a two-way, like, you can't just let a one let us tell us the answer because it will still need testing in the lab and likewise we're going to do stuff in the lab we're going to need a biotech to look into it so it's still going to have a two-way thing you it's not going to solve the world we we'll still have to test it
1: okay so we all agreed that uh, we should be using antibiotics responsibly actually i think the next big step is actually for
2: sequencing is going to be um culture-free diagnostics so when you go into a hospital then people, rather than spending a day or six weeks culturing a bug to find the antibiotic resistance profile, it can be done quickly with, say, Nanopore. You know, you get a result in a few minutes. It'll tell you what antibiotics may work, what antibiotics may not work, and then they can appropriately, you know, prescribe drugs rather than, you know,
1: doing this kind of trial and error that they do at the moment. Okay. So I, I, I want to do a little bit of kind of survey in the audience. Uh, have you ever taken antibiotic? all of us have, okay, at some point in our life. Uh, have you visited physician and you thought you need antibiotic but the physician didn't recommend to you? You thought like you feel like okay I'm feeling very miserable but I need antibiotic, I have a throat infection, whatever, but physician didn't recommend to you. Okay. Okay, I, I did feel like sometimes I go and talk to the physician and uh, I had ear infection once and uh, uh, the physician didn't uh, prescribe me the antibiotic. He gave me some to- uh, topical uh, spray that was not antibiotic. It was just... Uh, uh, acetic
3: acid, usually. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: It's kind of... Uh, I'm a nerd too. Yeah. <laughs> i too. I ear and
3: eye infections. <laughs> so,
1: you know, there, there are... Uh, people are using it responsibly, and uh, I really appreciate the audience here. They are uh, really responsible. So... Uh, Next, we think about like salmonella, that uh, we have developed XDR typhi, it's it's the cause of infection in developing countries, but we see the increasing number of cases in UK, in USA, in the developed countries, in Europe as well. So what do you think, how can we stop that, how can we minimize that or contain it?
4: So this is where I think sequencing is great at the minute because you can monitor a situation. So um, since the outbreak was originally identified, we can see it travelled to many different countries and you can monitor that really well. It may not solve the problem, but I think it makes people aware of the problem. So it makes the people that need to get things done aware of what's actually happening. And that's been started to put in place with vaccine programs, actually, in those regions. So, um, because they know about it now, they can actually implement a vaccine, which hopefully will help to eradicate it in the future.
2: Although the solution is just
1: a proper sanitation system.
4: That would also be very useful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, As you mentioned, very important point, a long-lived sequencing got a minion. so do you think min-ion, use of minion or long-read sequencing can help us in identifying long um, transposons or mobile genetic elements more effectively?
2: Uh, I kind can, of can't. Uh, initially, when they started doing long-read sequencing, they found actually a lot of the mobile genetic elements were disappearing. And it was because the original algorithms, which some people still use, would take the short long-reads, so the short fragments, and use those to correct the longer fragments. And then, algorithmically, it would say, okay, you know, anything I don't know, say below 3,000 bases would be used to correct all the other long ones, so you get higher quality long bits, but unfortunately, some uh, mobile genetic elements are very short, and so you'd have disappearing plasmids, and that's initially what they found uh, was happening. So, you just got to be aware that uh, bioinformatics doesn't solve everything and it can introduce extra errors and it can actually make you miss things. And you might be blindly looking at your data and not realizing that it's just the algorithms are making it disappear. But actually, long read sequencing will be very useful. And where it's most useful, I think, uh, moving forward is with if you can take an uncultured sample. So, I've said this already, but you can do like adaptive long read sequencing. Are you doing that?
4: No, but it is very um, rapid, so there are methods that can, instead of doing the culture method, which would take two days or longer, um, it would actually take potentially six hours from the person to actually get a result to say what it is and what is in it, so you can treat it with the right antibiotic at that moment in time.
2: So like with TB now, rather than spending six weeks growing up TB, TB is terribly antibiotic resistant like some strains are, are totally drug resistant that it? Mm. and uh so that, that's a big problem obviously because tb is very widespread and it spreads very very easily unfortunately and the vaccine is pretty poor and so now they've you know they've switched over to doing sequencing so instead of spending six weeks taking a result in a week or two then appropriately provide treatment which the treatment can take you know six months or 18 months depending on on how what strain a person has. So that's quite a good thing, you know, that's there to tackle antibiotic resistance. People are being treated appropriately, not being treated blindly.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree with you. Tuberculosis is a big, big problem because of uh, their longer um, grow- doubling time. So they take ages to grow as compared to E. coli or Salmonella or Staphylococcus. And that's why when we try to test antimicrobial susceptibility on TV. It takes six weeks or something like that.
4: Yeah the and normal uh, growth time for that is about three weeks so if you I think if you don't grow in the right conditions and it doesn't grow on that certain time then yeah. you've lost you've you've lost all that time already and you have to start growing it again yeah, and exactly. then you could miss it again so that could be a continuous cycle which could be solved really easily with sequencing. And
3: hopefully over time the price will go down so it can be implicated more in Developing countries, where you get a lot of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, because I know where I worked in Uganda for a short period of time, and there was a TB clinic there, and there was I had the one computer of the village, (laughs) so you know where they've got a lot of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis there. There was no means to do testing, and yeah, there's a lot of implications in developing countries sometimes, especially with antibiotics not getting. What they are, and so I think who guidelines at that time was 50% of antibiotics were actually what they said they were. So it is a global when we're thinking about AMR and resistance, it is a global thing. We need everyone to be on board, everyone of treating course. everything, yeah. simply, which is hard.
2: The pandemic has been very good actually for uh, low middle income countries yeah. because now sequencers have been spread around the world. Like uh, we sent out minions and a laptop and everything to Zimbabwe, to National Reference Lab yeah. there. And so they then did their first long read sequencing because of COVID, but that means they have all the training and equipment there to then do it for uh, Salmonella, Typhimurium, for example, and Typhi, which is what the original project was for. So, you know, you've got capacity that's being redirected
1: appropriately to uh, bacteria, which is obviously better. So, mobile genetic. Ma- Genetic elements, they are bad, but they are not the only culprit for all the antibiotic resistance mechanisms. Am I right, Andrew, about that or not? Yeah?
3: <laughs> and, if, and if you use them, Yassir, you're trying to use them for good.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can use them uh, for our good. Not only the transposons, but other plasmids as well, mm-hmm. because we use plasmids uh, and other mobile genetic elements to make certain kind of molecules that are used for good like insulin production we kind of produce insulin and other proteins that are being used and uh, we use them in our clinical settings in pharmaceutical or even industry like in the households like there are some enzymes that are produced as detergents we use them and they are all used one way or another we um, employ mobile genetic element to produce those kind of things Thank you very much uh, for uh, the discussion. It was very beneficial and uh, uh, as I have mentioned earlier uh, that uh, antibiotic resistance it does spread with the help of mobile genetic elements and it uh, spread through vertical means and as well as horizontal transfer of the um, genome across different species and uh, different uh, genera. So, uh, mobile genetic elements are the part of a major problem. And our sequencing that we use, uh, lumina sequencing or the longer sequencing that we use, they are very beneficial because they can educate us about the situation very quickly that we were not able to do that a couple of decades ago. And uh, because of that, we have been able to contain and not only the antibiotic resistance mechanism, but we have also been able to manage the disease by producing certain kind of vaccines targeted vaccines that are with the help of of course knowing the sequencing and the structure of the proteins and uh, genome sequencing and the mutations that are happening in the real time so i must say that uh, the advances in technology that have brought us this far they can be used for the uh, beneficiary of uh, um, the humanity and the health system in future. Thank you very much for your contribution. It
0: was lovely talking to you. Thanks, yes. Thank you very
4: much.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.